millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Crime Investigation Podcast, where this time we are talking all about our brand new show, Robbie Coltrane's Critical Evidence. That's right, the hype is real, everyone's talking about it, and you can get involved Sunday nights, 10pm, Crime Investigation. Join us on Twitter, at CI, on Facebook, at CIUK. But what is a show all about, you say? Well, it's very interesting you ask. We are looking, as you may have guessed, at critical evidence, because sometimes when there's a murder with no suspect... No leads and not even a body. It's a tough test to find out, but sometimes a vital clue, a piece of evidence that comes almost out of nowhere, can be the saving grace. Everybody here at Crime Investigation HQ is very excited about the show, including Diana Carter, the commissioning editor and head of talent at A&E International. Robbie Coltrane's critical evidence for the Crime and Investigation Channel is, I want to say groundbreaking, because it is our first UK-led global commission so that basically means that every channel from A&E in the world is taking this uh, this program because it Robbie Coltrane is a household name he needs no no explaining really we'll be hearing from Robbie Coltrane later in the show but for now we're going to focus on all eight cases that you'll see on Robbie Coltrane's critical evidence and here's some of the guests you'll be hearing from my name is Dr Jennifer Guest I'm a senior forensic science lecturer at the University of Greenwich I've been doing that for about a year and a half now. And before that, I was a forensic scientist with the Metropolitan Police, working in their serious crime directorate. I'm Dr Donna Youngs. I'm an investigative psychologist, which means I research uh, patterns of criminal behaviour with an aim to improve police and other investigations and the legal processes around offending and offenders. I love any opportunity to talk about forensic science. Uh, One of the main reasons I went into lecturing and one of the reasons I used to enjoy giving evidence at court. And I think the approach of this show is really interesting to go from the point of view of the evidence. And I think it's interesting for people to realise just sometimes how much evidence there is in a case and that of that, just one or two items might be the crucial ones that, that take the case forward or solve the case. I'm thrilled to be part of this show looking at some of the most intriguing murder cases that we've faced in this country over the last few decades. Uh, Cases that have really baffled the police uh, and have been incredibly psychologically interesting. Episode one of Robbie Coltrane's Critical Evidence is Dead Man's Hollow, where, for the first time on British television, you'll see a case which took three years to solve. 
December 2002, an off-duty fireman smelt burning flesh and had to investigate. And there it was, a burning body. But for a case to take three years to solve, that can often be a massive problem. Yeah, this is a real nightmare case in terms of a loss of evidence. Because it's taking them so long to identify the victim, they haven't got anywhere to go. They've got no leads, nowhere to start looking for an original scene of the crime, where the victim was actually killed. Um, And all the time you're waiting to find that original scene, you're potentially losing the evidence in that original scene. In episode two, Time of Death, a con man became a murderer. July 1996, and a fisherman hauls in his nets to find a dead body. This is not a simple case. In most murders, the link between the body and the perpetrator is is very immediate, simple, direct. Uh, You just need to know um, who they know or where they've been, and then you get straight to the murderer. Um, But sometimes, sometimes, just sometimes, the story that ties the body back to the offender is rather more complex, complicated, convoluted, more incredible, in fact. For Dr Jennifer Guest, the forensic nature of the crime was very intriguing. I think this is a really interesting case where the body's been in water for, for three weeks in this case. Um, so if, just, if you can imagine you've had that lovely long soak in a bath and just the changes to your own body when you do that, the, the wrinkling of the skin, um, and then just magnify that of over a long period of time of being in water and the changes that would cause to your skin. Um, basically, the skin becomes really soft. It starts to lift away from the tissue underneath and so it almost fits over the body loosely, like a glove or like a, a piece of clothing. And so sometimes what can happen when you take the body out of the water is that the skin actually starts to come off or come away. For Detective Superintendent Phil Sincock, this was one of the toughest cases of his career. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um Really, you look at this whole case, and um, it, it was a sort of a one-in-a-million shot that his body was recovered from the, from the sea six miles out um, in an area that is not trawled by many trawlers because um, uh, it, it's got a very rocky um, seabed and which tears up their nets. But this particular fisherman fishes there because he's got adept, uh, nets adapted for that. Uh, but, you know, you think of the enormity of the sea. It was a one-in-a-million shot that he was dragged up in the nets of that trawler. And, of course, um, uh, Walker had taken everything off Ronald Platt that might identify him. You know, his, uh, his pockets were, were empty. There was nothing on him whatsoever. And because he was such a loner with so few family, um, he was never reported missing by anybody. Um, and it was a real mystery to the police who initially, uh, the uniformed officers who first attended the, the, the quay when he, his body was landed, um, it looked like a, um, a fairly frequent accidental death that we get in this sort of coastal area where someone goes out on a boat, slips, bangs their head and falls in the sea and drowns. Strongly adhering to the severity of the crime, Albert Walker was very complex psychologically. In psychological terms, what the case uh, exposes, shows us, is that our ideas uh, about there being one type of criminal or another type of criminal, a robber or a rapist, a fraudster or a murderer, uh, are not right. Uh, And in fact, it's a subtler process than that. That sometimes the key feature of an individual is not their preference for a certain type of criminal activity, but uh, the psychological readiness 
a psychological preparedness to do whatever it takes to get to what they want, however that means in terms of a, an offence type. Another offence type was clearly indicated in episode three, Murder by Mail, when in 1984, a parcel bomb was put through the door of a 53-year-old grandmother. Incredibly, this case took 18 years to come to court. But what's very interesting is that one of the critical pieces of evidence can now no longer be used. What struck me about this case was the piece of evidence would be useless to us now. So um, he would have had to lick the stamp to stick it onto the parcel that he sent. And that's a great source of DNA. Because what you can do is you can cut through the back of the parcel to get to the back of the stamp and recover the DNA. And then you still preserve the front for fingerprints. So that's a great double source of evidence. Um, But unfortunately now, stamps are all self-adhesive. So there's no need to lick them. Um, And so that's a source of evidence that's actually lost from a case like this if it occurred now. I think there's definitely been an increase in forensic awareness in the general population and people would be less likely to lick a stamp or lick an envelope. They might just use water instead and they certainly would be unlikely to handle it with their bare hands. They probably would put some gloves on. So, yeah, I think we don't get as much evidence from that kind of thing as we used to. In a sad twist, the murderer, Keith Cottingham, was never truly brought to justice as he died while in custody, as explained by Detective Inspector John Pearce over the phone. Once he, once he died whilst he was on remand, um, the process that had to be um, adopted was that his, he would have had his fingerprints taken post-mortem um, and experts would have um, have to go before a judge to establish that the person who died in prison was the same person who was due to face the charges of murdering Barbara Howard. And once that had been done, that was the end of the case. A new case is explored on episode four of Robbie Coltrane's critical evidence, The Hitman and the Hairdresser, when 29-year-old Nisha Patel Nasri was murdered. Dr. Jennifer Guest worked on the case. Uh, yeah, this was a really, um, really tragic case where Nisha Patel Nasri was um, stabbed just once outside of her own home um, and just really unfortunately was stabbed in an artery and she bled out really quickly. And so although she alerted her neighbours straight away to the fact that she'd been injured and they came out to help her straight away, they just were unable to save her because she bled out so quickly. It's really, really sad. Um, And the reason I was called to this case was to look at the bloodstain patterns outside of the house. So what we're always hoping for when there's been a stabbing is that the perpetrators cut themselves on the knife. So the aim of looking at the bloodstain patterns is to try and find something that doesn't fit in, that isn't the victim's blood, that might lead us to a perpetrator... So either through DNA, by swapping the bloodstain and, and identifying the person, or sometimes it can take us off in a direction, so there's a trail of blood, and we can follow that, hopefully to a knife or um, to something which is going to lead us to the perpetrator. However, unfortunately in this case, there was no bloodstaining that, that didn't come back to being niches, so that aspect of the case didn't actually take us forward um, here. Although blood did not prove to be a piece of critical evidence in this case, it can often come up trumps. Less likely when it's a single stab wound, but if there's been multiple stabbings, then, then what happens is the, the handle of the knife actually gets wet with blood and it becomes slippy. So then it's easy for the perpetrator's hand to slip down the knife and they cut themselves on the blade. Um, and also, that if there's been any kind of violent struggle, the victim might have lashed out and, the, and then they injure the, the perpetrator that way. So, yeah, it's always a possibility and definitely something to, to always look for. The psychological aspect of this case also had to be looked at. What this case does show us is that actually, typically, the psychological clues as to what happened, if you know where to look for them, are there. Uh, And 
it's often the case that those clues are to be found somewhere in the family background. When there's a murder with no suspect, perhaps not even a body, that's when investigators face their toughest test. The only way to prove what happened, critical evidence. Watch the brand new TV series, Robbie Coltrane's Critical Evidence, Sundays at 10, exclusive to Crime and Investigation. Yes, indeed, the star of Critical Evidence is Robbie Coltrane, and he spoke to us about the show and his own interest in crime. Well, I think most people are fascinated by crime and by people behaving appallingly <laughs> and the notion they get caught. But uh, in my particular case, my father was a police surgeon. And I can remember coming home to the kitchen. My father was surrounded by six detectives talking about the Peter Emanuel case. And um, we don't have police surgeons anymore. They'd be called CSI North Berwick or something. <laughs> but um, there was the same idea. It was just like pulling bodies out of the cloud and thinking, what happened to this guy? What was his last meal? Why did he end up there? Did he do something bad? Did he fall off the, at the jetty? Did somebody hold him down when he drowned? Um, I think we're all fascinated by that. I think what people are attracted to about crime stories is that most people live a blameless life. They do not do bad things to people. They're kind to their children. They're nice to their granny. And um, they have a totally decent life. And they want to know that people who do not have a life like that, who behave selfishly and are quite happy to make other people totally miserable in order to buy a new watch or, or a second-hand BMW, uh, go to jail. That's what uh, Cracker was about. That's what all the great crime stories were about. It's about the idea that um, if you behave badly, you get caught, which is kind of what our show's about, really, because they all got caught, apart from the one who died in prison. And I think the police were annoyed about that. They thought, damn. Very well put by Robbie, who continued his thoughts on critical evidence. What's so interesting about most of these stories is that if you were, uh, let, let's say for the sake of argument, you were going to pitch them to a producer and said, right, here's the story, blah, 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 blah. Man gets pulled out of the sea with a big hole in the back of his head, no identification on him. And his pockets have been turned inside out. You think, why would that be? Why would anybody who fell off a boat turn his pockets inside out? You just think, no, somebody else turned his pockets inside out. The whole notion about the whole show is that however much evidence you may drag into a case, the important thing is that one day you're going to have to drag it in front of a jury. And cops, um, this, I've known cops over the years, and I met an awful lot of cops when I was doing Cracker, is this, that if you've been a cop for 20 years, your instincts are like razors. And if you get four cops around a table like this, right, and one picture, and they say, right, what's his name? What do you think? And they'll all go, guilty, 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 guilty. That's one thing, right? But at some stage, you're going to have to drag it in front of a jury of ordinary people who don't have these instincts. Butcher, baker, candlestick baker, whatever. And they're going to have to say, oh, I'm, oh, did they? Did he? Are you sure? And did you sure? is the thing, and that's what critical evidence is. Critical evidence is the evidence that makes it almost inevitable in front of uh, a bunch of ordinary people, like you and me, who might be made to do jury service. You just think, yeah, 
he did it. There was one particular case which Robbie was very interested in. Well, the particular one, of course, is the one with the burning body in the field. Nobody had any idea who he was. Where do you begin with that? Where do you begin when you don't even know whose corpse there is? And that ex astonishing scene where there's three bits of paper and the guy who's on his bicycle driving past, who's a fireman, knows exactly what the smell of burning human flesh is. And fortunately, very few of us ever know what that is. And he screeches to a halt and runs up the field. And he gets the boys up from the fire brigade and he says, spray this with mist. That's just one example of some of the things you'll see on critical evidence. But for Robbie, the show means even more. We said, if you presented this as a plot and you went to a producer or a, a line producer or, a, you know, and you said, look, we want to make this drama about blah, 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 and here's the plot, they'd all go, nah. And yet it was true. And that, that's, that's what's so interesting about this. It is about things that seem so unlikely but actually happened. And I think, I think that's what people will love about it. I certainly did. That's why I'm doing it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We now continue our look at every episode of Critical Evidence and we move on to episode 5, DNA of a Murder, which is pretty much a cold case review. In March 1984, Hilda Morel was found dead in Woodland near her hometown of Shrewsbury. 20 years later, the case was eventually solved and one of the things that helped was semen stains. Yeah, because this is basically a cold case review as far as I understand. They've gone back to look at it um, later when techniques have advanced. Um, and so they've been able to analyse the semen stain that was left at the time of the crime and um, identify a DNA profile from it. Um, and people might be surprised to, to realise that DNA survives so well over such a long period of time. But actually, DNA is, is a pretty sturdy substance. It's pretty robust. Um, as a student, I had a lovely project where I had to work on recovering DNA profiles from 19-year-old semen stains that had been stored under the office desks. Um, and, and we still got brilliant full profiles from those. Uh, so DNA really is quite robust. Um, as long as it's been stored well, it's been stored dry and not too hot, then there's no reason at all why you wouldn't get a DNA profile even after such a long period of time. One of the biggest misconceptions about DNA is it doesn't stand the test of time. Although it's very robust, it really doesn't like to be damp. Um, if any mould grows on an item, that's going to eat up the DNA and, and break it down. So that can cause real problems. But you have to remember that for DNA profiling, what we're looking at isn't the whole DNA sequence. It's just small sections of it. Um, so even if the DNA does begin to get broken down into fairly small pieces, we can still carry out the DNA profiling technique because we're looking at at small pieces of DNA anyway. So as long as it hasn't been degraded so that those small pieces have been lost, then it's still possible to get a profile or maybe even a partial profile. A vital aspect of this case is that the murderer, Andrew George, was just 16 years old when he committed the crime. From a psychological perspective, this is puzzling. The Andrew George case, this murder case, this type of case is one that, that really just leaves you shaking your head in, in disbelief. 
the question that comes up is why? Why this 78-year-old lady who's, whose life is the antithesis of anything criminal or, or sordid? Um, and, and more than that, why, why in this way? Why in this strange way, this confused, erratic behaviour? Uh, these contradictory actions where in one minute the, the offender seems to be brutal to the victim and the next minute almost intimate. But why, why in this way where they, they don't, the offender doesn't actually seem to gain anything particularly? It doesn't seem to be about money or, or, or even sex particularly. So it's a, it's a very baffling case and I can see why this was particularly challenging for the police. But, you know, it's actually a case that... Um, I think really illustrates um, the power of psychological profiling. Because here, it's actually by understanding the behaviour, it's by understanding the, the underlying narrative of the attack, and that's what, that's what we look at, that we can recognise that what's going on here is a particular uh, psychological offending style. Uh, and it's one, and when we when we can recognise that by reading the psychological narrative, then we know we know from our studies that this is associated with a certain type of criminal, a certain type of individual. Episode six is the body in the suitcase. This is the first time the case has ever been on television, and it features an array of experts who are very intriguing, including Carolyn Roberts, who's the only person in the country to be a forensic hydrologist. I find the work that Carolyn Roberts does absolutely fascinating. It's so interesting and is, as you say, quite niche. And there's a lot of areas like that. If you think about botany and, you know, paleontology, uh, looking at um, like hairs and fibres even, these are all fairly niche areas. And without strong support, they can't exist because there's no one to support the research. There's no one to support the funding to allow those um, areas to continue. And so I think it's really important that people understand that forensic science is actually quite expensive to run and the people who are buying forensic science, police services, are not cash rich. So um, I think there is a need for, for the country as a whole to support forensic science and forensic science research, particularly in these uh, niche areas. That kind of post-mortem playing with the body uh, is often associated with people with a, a psychiatric diagnosis, mentally ill people, um, because it demonstrates um, an absolute total lack of empathy for the individual as a human being, a lack of recognition that what they're dealing with is a human being. It's simply an object, uh, um, just a, a, an absolute desire to control that entity that they have before them um, uh, totally uh, by chopping it to pieces. It, it's, it's the most barbaric of, of murders that we see. Another barbaric murder happened in 1993 and is the subject of episode 7, Bodies of Evidence. Derek Severs and his wife Eileen were killed by their son Roger in a very disturbing case. Such was the unorthodox nature of the killings that many different experts were called in to help, including soil scientist Tony Brown. The very first case I worked on was the Severs case. Yeah, um, I mean, that was sort of, if you like, starting at the deep end or starting with a very, uh, a very big case. And yeah, I think it was necessary for a large case to to convince the police, particularly, that, that these techniques w would be useful. 
Um, so, um, and, and it came about because um, one of the forensic science service people who, who, in the days when we had a, forensic, a national forensic science service, one of the coordinators who was in fact in charge of the uh, of this of the forensic evidence for this case for the service case. He, he had done archaeology at, um, at uh, university, and in doing archaeology, he'd come across a soil analysis, because archaeologists basically have to know something about soils, because they're always being in it. And uh, also, he knew a little bit about forensic uh, applications of, of palynology. Uh, so he actually phoned the geology department at the University I was in, which was Leicester, the University of Leicester. And they couldn't, they don't do it, they couldn't do it, but someone in geology said, oh, but we know this guy upstairs in the Department of Geography upstairs who does do um, pollen work, pollen analysis, and so we'll contact him. And so then they contacted me and I went down to the Forensic Science Service uh, laboratories at Huntington to sample the vehicle because I realized from what the police said that there was a very good chance that the evidence that was on this vehicle could be very useful to the uh, investigation. As well as the unique scientific approaches needed to help solve the case, there was an uncharacteristic behaviour inside the killer. We had a, obviously a murderer that had been lying in wait for the second victim. We had attacking the, the victims from behind. We had um, a composure shown after the offences. We had a meticulousness, a, a a rational, logical way of disposing of the body. If this had been a typical crime passionelle, a, a typical domestic dispute that had just gone crazy, we wouldn't have expected any of these behaviours. We would have expected a stunned offender. We would have expected a, a distraught offender, um, someone full of remorse um, uh, for, their, for what had been a crazy, an absurd moment of, of total loss of control. Um, not the composure that the offender obviously showed post-crime here, post-offence here. Um, not the forensic awareness that we see here. So I think that's why this case is especially baffling. It just doesn't seem to, on first consideration, to fit any of the expectations that we've developed about murder. While Severs was betraying himself as in control psychologically, he left vital clues inside the house. Blood spatter stains had not been cleaned properly. Yes, I think it's interesting you say that the bloodstain pattern suggested a vicious attack and there'd been attempts to clean up. So there's been attempts to clean up, but not sufficiently to remove enough blood that uh, they weren't able to interpret the patterns. And I think people might be surprised that there'd be enough left to interpret a pattern after someone's tried to clean up. But in my experience, people are generally fairly rubbish at cleaning up at the end of a crime scene. Um, so they'll clean up the obvious bloodstaining as you're just looking into a room, but they'll never think to get down on their hands and knees and look underneath tables. They'll never think to move any items of furniture to clean behind them. So sometimes you'll find plenty of pattern to interpret what's gone on just in the areas that they haven't cleaned. A murderer who was much more thorough with his own cleaning was Colin Ireland, who is the subject of the last episode of Critical Evidence, Resolution to Kill. For the most part, we rely on people to, to forget clean areas and to not be forensically aware. So I think it's really interesting in this case that he's so forensically aware that he even thinks it would be odd to leave the house at this time and I'm going to wait until the morning. So, and the thorough cleaning, um, I think it's fantastically interesting. I'm really keen to watch this one. For Dr Donna Youngs, the process of Colin Island's killing was fascinating. What distinguishes these murders 
that he committed from most of the others that I study, and I, I've seen many, many cases um, in my research, is the focus on the process, the focus, the relish in the killing itself um, that's revealed in pre-mortem activity, such as the extending of the moment of killing, um, the use of a range of techniques to accomplish the killing, um, particularly the use of psychological torture. These are all indications of, of a real, as I say, relish in, in the killing process, um, rather than crimes that have been driven by a specific instrumental motive, an objective. They're not a means to an end. The means seems to be the end. And that is the end of this crime investigation podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you're very excited about Robbie Coltrane's critical evidence, the only way to see it, crime investigation, 10pm on Sundays. It'll be great if you join us. Tweet us at CI, Facebook at CI UK every week. We want your thoughts. What do you think about the cases? What do you think about the shows? And did you get the critical evidence? But for now, this crime investigation podcast is over. Until next time, stay curious. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.